0: everyone who's back out this evening. Tonight we are going to go back to our study, our various uh, almost case studies in the life of Peter. Something that when I was uh, first planning this series I called the real Peter. And the reason that I did that is because I wanted to look a little deeper into the stories, not necessarily to get every detail and I've not tried to do that, but really to look at the Apostle Peter as what I consider to be a holy individual, especially one who was uh, holy in his weaknesses uh, with respect to them, and also holy with respect to his strengths. We could go on, and we could go further and continue to look at Peter, but tonight I'm going to conclude the, the study by looking at the aftermath of the events of the crucifixion night. Now, if you remember... When we last left Peter, he was, or had been, cursing and swearing, defending himself, saying, I don't know him. You're one of this man's disciples. No, I'm not. Your speech betrays you. No, it doesn't. I am not a disciple. You're a Galilean. You were with him. No, I wasn't. Cursing and swearing. I don't know it. And once he had finished that series of probably three different times there, is what it appears to be. Jesus turned and looked at him. For all he had said earlier that night, and remember it had been just a few short hours, when he was boasting, Jesus had said, everyone here will forsake me. One will betray me and sell me outright, but all of you will forsake me and be scattered like sheep. No, I won't, Peter said. I'll defend you, I'll go to prison for you, I'll die for you. I won't. I won't forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, you will. And in fact, before this night is through, the cock will, will crow twice, and you will deny me three times. And then he had taken Peter out. A, a subsequent event in which Peter could have at least proven how he really felt about Jesus, and we're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a moment. But he took him out, and he was obviously in agony over what Jesus was, over what he was about to suffer. He told him, told Peter, and told the disciples that he was very, his heart was very heavy. He was very saddened. He, he was really suffering from what, from thinking about all of it. He had told them clearly. Had they really been listening? And Peter had even been rebuked. Remember, he told him clearly he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and so forth, he was going to die. And it's obvious that he is going to do that. He's about to go through that. They're preoccupied in their thought. They're thinking about themselves. They're perhaps not grasping how serious the situation is or what Jesus said or what he really meant. We don't know all of that. But he separates Peter, James, and John, who appear to be personally closer to him. And when I say that, I just mean it's not that... The others are not loyal, they don't have their allegiance, they are not full-fledged apostles or anything like that. But Peter, James, and John appear to be close to him. Peter appears to be like we would call a best friend. James and John appear to be like younger brothers to him. John especially appears to be the youngest. But all that aside, Peter, you're my close friend. I want you to come with me, and I want you to watch, and I want you to pray. And I'm really telling you to pray for yourself as much as anything, but watch with me for an hour. And they fell asleep. And Jesus comes back on three, three different times, three different occasions there, asking for them to be with him, asking Peter to just, you know, do, just do that. Just show how much you care for me, to watch with me, and be with me during this time. And, and Peter can't even do that. I don't know it. Peter had sworn he didn't know him. He had gone out. He had wept bitterly over his lack of you know, faithfulness to Jesus. And then Jesus is taken and he's killed. And if you're Peter and you're thinking about all of that and all of that's running through your mind, maybe you are like many of us are, especially when someone dies When we lose someone close to us and we begin to go over all in our mind, you know, I could have said this, I wish I'd done that type thing. Imagine what that would have been through for Peter. What he would have been going through. So now Jesus has been crucified and Jesus has been taken and buried. And we're going to pick up the story. And I'd like for you to turn with me to Matthew 28. Because now, having died on Friday, it is early Sunday morning. And you know that the women were going and basically putting spices on his body and so forth. And they came on Sunday morning following the Passover, intending to do that, intending to honor him, really, by putting these spices on him and so forth. But anyway, long story short, I'm not going to look at everything about this story, but they do come to the tomb, and Jesus isn't there. Obviously, Jesus is resurrected from the dead, just as he said he would be. And in fact, the angels appear to the women, and Jesus even appears to them. But the message is, go quickly. And you can see this. Let's just read chapter 28. Go down to, oh, what, about verse 5, maybe. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly. And tell his disciples, verse 7, that he is risen from the dead. Now you imagine being Peter here. And the women come back and they do tell you. And they say he's risen from the dead. And you're, you basically you would be, like, can it be? Can it really be? I mean, you've lost a loved one. He is a loved one to Peter. He is a close friend to Peter. He's lost him and the last meeting they had, the last contact as far as we know, is Jesus looking at him as he curses and swears he doesn't even know him. And then Peter leaves, goes out, weeps bitterly. They take him, they beat him, they nail him to a cross, they kill him. Can it be? Is it possible that he would be raised from the dead? Is it even possible that, it, you know, I could have a second chance, so to speak, well, I want you to go over to Luke's account, and we get an insight as to what Peter's kind of going through. Look with me at Luke 24, same account, in other words, the same morning, Jesus just risen from the dead. Well, if I can get my fingers to turn to 24, but Luke chapter 24, and I want to drop down, oh, to about verse 9 here. And notice that they returned from the sepulcher, that is, then the women, of course, returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that were with them. They told these things unto the apostles, notice verse 11, and their words seemed to them as idle tales. The idea of just a worthless story, a worthless tale, it can't be. And they did not believe them. Here you are, you've gone through all of this, you want it to be so. I don't know if you've ever lost someone that was really close to you. And in those first few days, now the closest person I ever lost, you know that, was my grandmother. It was such a strange time. And Montel can remember, you know, day and night, and I'm just breaking out in, I mean, literally, in convulsing and crying because of the loss. But it was very strange, and I never experienced anything like this before, where over the next couple of days, I wanted to, to hope against hope that she wasn't really dead. That I could somehow go to her home or go to where she was and she'd be there. It was very strange. And, And I'm not saying there was anything mystical going on or anything else. And I knew logically, you know, she was gone. There wasn't any question about that. But I wanted it to be so. Obviously, I didn't believe it. Well, here, you have a similar situation except that you've been told. Jesus had told them himself. I will rise the third day. I'm coming back. I will die. No question about it. But I will come back. Maybe it's for everything they've done. Maybe it's for everything Peter has personally done. I don't know. But the apostles don't believe when the women tell them. It's just like, no, that's just, that's too far-fetched. Can't believe that. It's just a a worthless fairy tale. And I think sometimes when you failed really badly, you know, even good news, And the good news, obviously, is that he is risen from the dead. But even the best of news, it just kind of falls on deaf ears. You just can't believe anything good can happen because you have failed so badly. And you feel so miserably. Well, anyway, to follow the story, if you notice in verse 12 here, if we're in Luke 24, and you go down to verse 12, Peter did get up, verse 12, and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he beheld the linen clothing laid by themselves and departed. And if you'll notice, the idea is, okay, I'm at least going to go check it out. Let me flip over for a moment and go with me, if you will, to John's account. Hold your finger here, because I'm going to come right back. But go over to John's account and look with me at John chapter 20. So they get up and they, some people have said they almost have a foot raised to the tomb. But Peter and John. Now you have to remember, Peter is probably around 40 somewhere around there, maybe in his early 30s. That would be about as young as he would be. John is either a teenager or maybe 20 years old, somewhere around that age. But he and John both run to the tomb. Let me pick up reading in John 20 and about verse 3. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, as John always describes himself, and came to the tomb. So they ran both together, and that other disciple, John, outran Peter. I don't wonder, you know, (laughs) but he outran Peter. And he came first to the sepulcher, or the tomb. And he's stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes, clothes lying, and yet he didn't go in. And then comes Simon Peter following him, but he did go into the tomb. Now notice this, this is interesting to me. Because if you've done what Peter has done, you think about the difference in the two of them. They all forsook Jesus, they all ran when the mob came after Jesus. John came back very quickly. Peter followed afar off, if you remember. John came and went into the court, went into the house perhaps even of the palace of the high priest. He went inside. If we follow John, I don't know where John was all night or anything else, but we can look at the cross and John of the disciples is the only one at the foot of the cross. John is right there. John takes the commitment to look after Mary. You remember all of that. So we follow John. John had his mistakes that night, but you've got to say John did pretty good overall. But now you're Peter. And boy, you, you failed so miserably. We outlined all of that earlier. Now you go to the tomb, and he really is not there. And you go inside, and yeah, there's the story circulating that somebody came and stole the body. Is that what happened? Can it really be that Jesus rose from the dead? But I think that there's closure here in the death and the resurrection of Jesus because Peter, he examines it. John just looks in. Boy, he's not there. Peter goes inside the tomb, and you know you know how that is. You go into that empty house. I did that at my grandmother's house. You walk around all those places where she was full of life and so forth. She's gone. She is not here in this house. Well, in this case, he is not dead. He's not in this tomb. So you notice how it puts it here. Peter, following him, verse 6, went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes and the napkin that had been about his head, that is a piece of cloth covering his face and his head. It wasn't lying with the linen clothes, but it was wrapped together in a place by itself. And what it looks like, we might say, what is all of that? Well, what it looks like is that someone was laying their dead in the burial wrappings and suddenly stood up, sat up, stood up, started to walk across the floor with the burial wrappings around him, and they're falling off piece by piece. And if you dig into this a little bit closer, what would have been put on his face, there would have been all kinds of spices and so forth put on there, and then this cloth would literally stick to his head. It's been drying there for a couple of days, etc., etc. You're going to get up. You know how that is. You get up, something's clinging to your head, but it falls off as you walk across the floor. That appears to be what happened with Jesus, and Peter would be taking all this in. Then the other disciple went in, verse 8, He came to the sepulcher first. John, of course, he saw, and he believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Now, isn't that interesting? They don't know the scripture, they don't understand, and yet he told them. Clearly told them. We could go back to Matthew 16, for example, when he rebuked Peter, and we can see him saying that. Or Matthew 12. Show us a sign. I give you a sign. That of the prophet Jonah. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and come back. But they just don't get it. So the disciples went away into their own home. And I want you to go back with me to the book of Luke, if you're holding your finger there. But flip back to Luke 24. And notice down in verse 12 again as we're looking at this. Remember, John goes in, he sees all of that, and he believes Jesus has risen from the dead. But I want you to look at verse 12. Peter ran into the sepulcher, stooping down, beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, now notice, notice this, wondering in himself at that which was to come to pass. When I look at Peter, I see a person, the moment... Jesus looked at him the moment the cock crowed. He was just overcome with guilt. Total remorse over what he had done. Maybe you've been through something like that. You've done it. You know you did it. It's horrible. You're filled with guilt. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Maybe you've wept bitterly over something. But then the days pass. And it settles into you that you did that thing. You can't undo it. It's not going to go away. This, it, for the rest of your life, is going to be a fact of your life. I did that thing. You want to believe. You, maybe you're a Christian and you do that. And you want to believe that everything God says, you know, you repent of your sin. What does that mean? You change it. Well, man, it feels so horrible what I did. I will never do it again. And there are plenty of people who go through something like that. They do it. It's so horrible like T.J. was talking about this morning, how horrible sin is, and they will never do it again. But that's not all there is to it, is there? The Bible says if you repent and you ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you. But it seems too easy. I did this thing, I feel so bad about it, God will forgive me. Peter seen Jesus forgive. I mean, just like the story we saw this morning, and so many people like that. Great amounts of sin, great sins in themselves as we would look at them and they would look at them. He's seen Jesus forgive, but now it's personal. You know, what you'll sit down and talk to someone about and what you will tell them that God will forgive them of is a totally different thing than you will tell yourself God will forgive you of. Because when you do it, it's personal. When you do it, you are guilty. I think Peter is in that situation. What does it all mean? I mean, is he dead? Is he alive? I'm not, I don't know what I believe about all that. If he is alive, if he is dead, I did all of that, and it's just like you and I. When someone's gone, you can't ever go back and do what you wish you'd done. But if he's alive, what does that mean? I mean, I stood there like an idiot, and I said I would do this, and I said I would do that, and then I did everything all wrong. Yeah, I charged the mob with a sword, but that wasn't right. And then he said, just sit with me right here and pray with me. And I couldn't do that. And then he said, you'll deny me. And I said, no, I won't. And I did. When he needed me the most, when he was in there being humiliated and beaten and spit on and everything else, when he needed a friend, I ran. What does it mean? You ever messed up with somebody you really cared about? I mean, betrayed them, sinned against them, sold them out even, you know? And you literally would cut your arm off to take it back. What does it mean? You go back to the person and you can say, I'm sorry, but it still happened. Maybe they they looked at you and they trusted you and they believed in you. I mean, man, Peter, Jesus believed in Peter. Son, you're the rock. Boy, I was really a rock that night. You, Peter, man, you know, you, when I can count on you, when I need somebody to make a confession, stand up, you know, will you go away also? Lord, to whom shall we go? I mean, you're the one that can be counted on, but boy, I couldn't be counted on that night when he needed me the most. What does it all mean? Peter went away wondering in himself. I want you to go with me to John again. And we're going to kind of follow this story, and if you'll notice down in John 20, and I'll just kind of summarize several events over the next few days. The Bible tells us and shows us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm not going to spend the time tonight to do all of this, because that's not the part of the story I really want to see tonight. But Jesus will meet with the eleven again and again and again. Maybe on a daily basis, maybe several times a day, or maybe it is that, you know, every other day or whatever, the Bible doesn't say. But it gives us enough to know that it's a number of times that He will come to them, He'll appear to them seemingly out of nowhere, He will come up to them when they're in a house and they're talking and they're wondering about everything that's happening, all this kind. But Jesus will continue to meet with them. If you look at John 20, you really see that. Now, John 20 is the account where he does just appear to them all. We can see that. You drop down about about verse 19. It was the same day at evening that he appeared to them. This is where he says, Peace be unto you. Apparently breathes the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. In verse 24, this is the meeting where Thomas is not there, remember. And so he will come back and he will meet with them again. And this time Thomas will be there. Remember Thomas, I am not going to believe... Until I see him, and I see I touch the very print of the nails, I'm not believing. But Jesus, we know the story, Jesus appears. Now, a day happens, follows a couple of days. No way to know that, but it's not a long amount of time. And I want you to go with me to John 21. You'll notice that I put on the outline, it may seem very strange, but my points on the outline were, at the end, And I meant at the end of Jesus' life. And at the end of that initial, and I'll call it immature or young relationship between Jesus and Peter. There's that horrible failure of Peter. The crucifixion night. You'll notice that I entitled the next section, At the Beginning. And At the Beginning refers to the initial... Resurrection morning events and running to the tomb and can it really be, is he really alive? And then kind of leaving that whole idea with, well, even if he is, what does it mean? And you'll notice the third section at the seaside, which doesn't really go with at the end, at the beginning. In my homiletics class, I'd have to come up with something better than that, but it is the crucial event. And I want you to look at it with me. It was after these things, that is, after the meeting with the Thomas, you know, in the second meeting with the Thomas, uh, when Thomas was there and so forth, it was after these things, verse 1, that Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise, he showed himself. And there was gathered together Simon Peter and Thomas, who was called Didymus, or the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, of course, And there were two other of his disciples, we don't know who they are, seven in all. And Simon Peter said unto them in verse 3, I'm going fishing. You know, a lot has been made about that, I don't know whether to make something of it or not, I'll be honest with you. Some people said, you know, Peter's just kind of given up, Uh, Jesus never accept me again, I'm going back to my original employment. I, I doubt all. He just is a fisherman. That's what he does. And if you've ever done a lot of fishing, fishing is, has all kinds of benefits to it. It's relaxing. gives you time to think, sort things out. I mean, what is there to do but pretty much watch a line when you're fishing, you know? I'm going fishing. Well, these other six guys, they said, well, you know what? We're going with you. So they jump up, and the seven of them go fishing. says so they went out, and they entered into a ship or a boat immediately, and that night they didn't catch anything. Notice that. And if this starts ringing a bell, boy, this sounds familiar. It ought to. There are tremendous parallels in that first meeting. Remember Luke 5. They didn't catch anything that night, but when the morning came, Jesus was standing on the shore. But the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus called out to them. He said, children, do you have any meat? Do you have any food? They answered him, no, we didn't catch anything. We don't have anything. He said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship. If that rings a bell to you, it should, because it parallels Luke 5. Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And you can almost hear Peter going, boy, we've been through this before. Better cast that net out there. (laughs) They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It parallels Luke 5. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, who was Peter's partner, remember, in the fishing business. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. We've been through this before. It's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, and and, and that's interesting even in itself, isn't it? Is this guy still doubting it can be Jesus? Is he still all messed up mentally and emotionally? I wonder. But when John said, It's the Lord, Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his Uh, fisher's coat about him, because he was naked, and that's not strange. That was very much the practice of these guys, how dirty and so forth the work was. He was naked, and he cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, and again, about 300 feet, 100 yards, football field off the shore. So they're dragging the net with the fishes. And as soon as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and the fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish that you caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land that was full of great fishes. There were 153 of them. Remember, they didn't catch anything all night. But now 153 in one casting. And there were all so many, yet was not the net broken. And if you remember, if that rings a bell, it ought to sort of ring a bell, because the net did start to break in Luke 5. But Jesus said unto them, come and dine. Now just imagine this scene. You are Peter. You've done what you've done. The rest of the disciples can't claim they were perfect that night. And you're all... Have you ever been in one of those uneasy situations? Something has happened. Big has happened. That really interfered with the relationship. and Now we're all together. We kind of sit down to eat a meal and everybody's kind of looking around. What's going to be said? What's going to happen next? Yeah, somebody knows exactly. All right, so there they sit. And so Jesus, sitting there, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus then comes and takes bread and gives it to them. If that rings a bell, it ought to. Because remember, really, the last thing he did with them before telling them when they were discussing how great they were and were going to be, was he gave them bread and instituted the Lord's Supper. He gives them bread and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. After they ate, verse 15. Now we're going to spend a few minutes on this, and this is the rest of the lesson. And really, this is our rest of our study of Peter in the Gospels. After they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, did he take him aside? A lot of people suppose so. It doesn't appear that he did. But he said to Simon Peter, Simon, and I want you to notice that, not Peter. I don't know if there's significance to that or not. But he's not calling him by his nickname, The Rock. He's calling him by his given name, which was Simon. Simon, son of Jonah. Do you love me more than these? Now, Jesus asked a question. We don't know how he intoned each syllable. He could have said, do you love me more than these? He could have said, do you love me? Emphasizing love more than these. We don't know how he said it, but the benefit of the original language, we do know what he said. And when he asked Peter the question, he asked Peter, do you love me, using the most basic word for love. In the New Testament, there are basically three words for love. And one of them means that incredibly close connection you have as family. You know, like a mother's love for a child. That's not this word. Another word, which is far more general, is a word that we use for anyone who's close to us, who loves us with affection, with warmth, who has feelings of us, feelings of friendship. The word Philadelphia, you know, the city of brotherly love. That word, of affection. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the most generic, general term for love that really is not even a word of feeling. It's not a word that that conjures up any idea of how close someone is to you, but it has more to do with how someone treats you, the action that they show toward you. He asks him, do you love me? It is a word of commitment, however. It's the word, for example, when we would be commanded, love your enemies. person says, how am I going to feel all warm and fuzzy toward my enemy? You're not being asked to. You're being asked to pray for them. You're being asked to return good for evil. You're being asked to pray for them. Those are all actions that you take because they're right. That's the word Jesus is using here. Do you love me more than these? Now notice Peter's answer. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. But he doesn't use that word of action. And how can he? I mean, every action that he has shown, starting from the moment that he was arguing, too busy to notice Jesus' feet hadn't been washed, not really listening to the Lord's Supper institution, and all of that right up through the, I swear, I don't know Him. Every action he's shown is that he is not going to treat Jesus the way he's supposed to be treated honor him like he should be how can he say yeah I really do so he doesn't he answers him back and I believe he's telling the truth here when he says you know I love you I'm friend I've been a lousy sorry friend I get it I failed you when you needed me I understand that I hate myself for it But what I feel for you is genuine. I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. It's interesting here what Jesus says to him. I want you to look at that phrase, feed my lambs. Because the word for feed here means to give nourishment. It's like literally throwing grass to a little baby lamb. Giving the lamb the nourishment it needs. A lot of young converts, a lot of young people, fail God miserably. They're just like Peter. And before we jump all over Peter and we look at his life and we say, how could Peter do this or how could Peter do that, have you ever made any of these kinds of mistakes that Peter made? And you know when you're young, and I mean just physically young, or when you're a young convert... You get scared. You you have lack of conviction. You're all over the place. Sometimes you're the strongest individual anybody ever saw, and in the next five minutes you're the weakest. And that's natural. It's normal. And Peter, there are a whole lot of lambs out there, and there are going to be a whole lot more. And they're going to need nourishment. And you're in a great position, because you know what it feels like. You go feed. He asked him a second time. Verse 16. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now notice, not do you love me more than these. Peter didn't answer it and Jesus didn't press it. He knows how Peter feels. Do you love me? Same word. Action. Proper action. Proper treatment. The way you're supposed to act. Do you love me? Peter answered him. Yes, Lord. I love you. Same word as he did in the first one. I'm your friend. Lousy as it may be, I'm your friend. I have deep feeling for you. I love you. He said to him, Feed my sheep. Totally different. It looks very similar to feed my lambs. Totally different. Different word for feed, and obviously sheep as opposed to lambs. This time, He tells Peter, Guide, direct, govern even, is the word, that you shepherd my sheep. Sheep entails everybody. Mature people, young people, everybody. Notice how Jesus is going back to that prayer on that night. Simon, Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you because I believe in you feed my sheep it's not the end of your life it's not the end of your leadership you fouled up you messed up bad but you're going to be a leader Peter and when you are you feed my sheep the best shepherds the best elders I have ever known in my life were the most humble who were able to admit the disasters in their life and their congregations can identify with that. They understand that. And when they understand that, they will listen to how to live a better life. Feed my sheep. So now he says to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? This time he doesn't use the word for action. This time he uses the word for feel. And you know, if someone that you love, think of a person you're so close to that you failed so badly, and they look at you and say to you, do you love them? Or oh, you you want, you, you almost need to be rebuked for what you've done. You want a person to know how you've failed them. You want to say it, and there aren't even words, you can't even put it into words how miserable you feel about it. But through all of it. You don't want your love question. They have a right to question. But you just want them to know somehow, even though you did what you did, that you still love them. This time he said, Do you love me? Are you my friend? Do you really feel all of that that you're saying you feel for me? And he grieved Peter that the third time he asked him that. I think while Jesus was saying, did you do what was right? Peter, you know, I deserved that. Because boy, I didn't. But you know everything. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Nourish my sheep. You've done this despicable thing. You can't take that back. You will for all of time and perhaps all of eternity be known as the boastful apostle who was going to die for me, who cursed and swore you never knew. But is that what counts? It would be to a lot of us. We would be done. We would be saying, I can't trust you. And I don't want any part of you. You just go on. I'll pick somebody else. I I can use somebody with a little more guts than that. But that's not Jesus. No, Jesus is... I'm sorry. Jesus is... That's exactly what I can use. And you go out there and you feed my sheep. You've been through it. You'll meet people for the next who knows how many years. Forty? Close to it? And there'll be people who've lived the kind of life you've lived. Depart from me, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. And there'll be people, even after they become Christians, they'll make horrible mistakes. One of these days, Peter, you're going to be an elder. And you're going to have a congregation of these kind of people that are just like you. Feed my sheep. And then he goes on to tell him, and someday you're going to be in another situation where somebody's going to come to you and say, are you one of his disciples? And you won't fail. They'll crucify you just like they did me. And you won't fail. I believe in you. Go feed my sheep. I've been asked by friends. What made you become a Christian? What made you become a preacher? He did. Because that's perfection on earth. That's everything that is great about God on earth. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You'll confess that belief. Tonight you'll repent. Repent. He baptizes for forgiveness of your sins. Become one of his disciples. He treats you the same way. And he will love you the same way. Maybe you're here tonight and you're a Christian. And you've messed up. You might even have messed up as bad as Peter messed up. He will love you. And he will treat you the same way. Please come. I would stand and sing.